Hello, I'm Oliver Wong. And I'm Morgan Rhodes. You're listening to Heat Rocks. Every episode, we invite a guest to join us to talk about a heat rock, a.k.a. an album that sears itself into your soul. Mm. And today, we are taking a trip back to Northern England of 1980 to talk about Closer, the second and last album by Joy Division. Call them the Drab Four. Singer Ian Curtis, guitarist Bernie Sumner, bassist Peter Hook, and drummer Stephen Morris. A quartet who found each other in the bleak post-industrial ruins of late 70s Manchester. They became avatars of an eclectic post-punk movement, drawing from a mishmash of transatlantic influences, including krautrock, hard rock, glam, and industrial, all held together through the chilling, flat affect of Ian Curtis's voice. Mm. After the group's 1979 debut, Unknown Pleasures, stirred the waters, they returned to the studio in the early spring of 1980. Producer Martin Hannett worked magic, taking the furious energy of the group's stage performances and then dragging it through a pool of liquid nitrogen, leaving behind a sound that could feel cold and barren, mm. yet grand and stately. What music writer Simon Reynolds once described as, quote, a vaulted sound, like the music was recorded in a mausoleum, unquote. Mm. In hindsight, it now all seems like a tragic foreshadowing as Curtis took his life weeks later. The remaining trio made the decision to release the album posthumously and then renamed and remade themselves into New Order, soon-to-be giants of mid-'80s synth-pop. I've always wondered if the album's title was meant to be ambiguous. Was it Closer, a plea for intimacy against the tides of alienation, Hmm. or was it Closer, an acknowledgement that the album marked an end in both figurative and literal ways. Mm. Closer was the pick of our guest today, Moby. Heat Rocks listeners should know by now. Every couple of episodes, the topic of samples will come up. Oliver Wong and I have spent a considerable amount of time and bandwidth discussing samples, usually as they relate to hip-hop. In the case of our guest, it was his use of a sample and these words from Vera Hall that introduced me to his work. Oh, Lordy, trouble so hard, don't nobody know my troubles but God. The year was 1999. My love affair with electronic music and its many iterations was thriving, prospering. And I was listening to a radio station, which kept the work of our guest on heavy rotation. I can't think of that time or the album play without also thinking about Alan Lomax and how the fusion of dance music and folk music was innovative, kind of dope, and perhaps a means to take the underground above ground to a level of appreciation that often in this genre was hard to earn. Shout out to Gangstar. And I was right. Play went hella platinum. Just hella. I won't give the numbers. It was indeed a heat rock that changed the game. So for this, for the expansion and edification of the experience of electronic music, for this, 
bringing field recordings to a new generation, and with it, some of the best voices in music. For this, for the cool in you, I thank you, Moby. Welcome to Heat Rocks. Oh, it's nice to be here. Thank you. So, how did you first discover Joy Division and this album in particular? Well, when I was growing up, uh, I grew up in Connecticut, and I grew up poor white trash on food stamps and welfare in arguably one of the wealthiest towns in the United States, Darien, Connecticut. Mm. And Darien is also one of the most homogenous Caucasian preppy towns in the world. And although I am sadly Caucasian, um, <laughs> my mom was a painter. She dated Hell's Angels. Mm. There was a lot. There was a lot of drugs. So, like my house, was, my home life was very scary. You know, with like gang members and drugs. But then I left my house, and I felt nothing but shame and fear because I would go to school where all of my classmates and even my friends were quintessentially just like affluent preppy white kids mm. from a you know suburban Connecticut town so I never felt comfort and it was only when I discovered music that I started sort of finding my people and finding comfort and there was one radio station out of New York WNYU for New York University. Yeah. And they had a show called The New Afternoon Show. And this was the late 70s. It was the only place you could hear alternative music. And I guess it was around 1979 or 1980. I got in the habit of coming home after school and taping songs off the radio. Yeah. But in the most lo-fi way. Like I stole 15-minute Radio Shack cassettes from the language lab at my school. <laughs> and I had one of those, like, little, like, standalone dictaphones. So I wasn't recording hi-fi off the radio. I was recording onto a dictaphone, essentially. Wow. Wow. And I heard a song from the first Joy Division album, Unknown Pleasures. Mm. And there was something about it that just resonated with me. Mm. You know, and Ian Curtis sounded so desperate and poetic at the same time. And then when the album Closer came out, my friend Dave talked his father into buying it for him. Because I'm sure you guys remember this. Like, records were precious. Yes. Yeah. Like, I had three records at this point, you know, and, like, I would work just to buy more records. Right. And my friend Dave got this record, and he let me borrow it, which was also unheard of. <laughs> right. And so I took this album Closer home, and it was like meeting my soulmate wow you know like it felt like all of a sudden like all my fear all my shame all my confusion i found someone who was able to express it mm. in ways that i had never even considered like it was just so beautiful and so poetic and so tragic mm. and we didn't know that he had killed himself yeah that mm -hmm. the singer had killed and then like we found that out and as horrifying as that is it also gives the desperation on the album almost like a legitimacy you're like, oh, this isn't a pose. Like, you're not pretending to be desperate. Right. You killed yourself at age 23. Like, that's a level of desperation I can't even conceive of. So sure. that was, that's my long-winded way of how I was introduced to the album Closer. No. I want to take a moment to shout out your homeboy, Dave. Yes, uh, for, for loaning that. That's out. it, yeah. for getting you to this point. Mm -hmm. So shout out to Dave if you're listening. I'm, Morgan, I'm curious for you. I mean, was this any of this stuff you were growing up listening to at all? No. 
Um, my introduction to Joy Division actually came through Jay Davy mm. because when Jay Davy first came out, that was in their bio, a lot of their bio, that they were heavily influenced by both Joy Division and Early Prince, specifically mm-hmm. as it related to Dirty Mind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it led me down this path. And so, of course, Unknown Pleasures was my gateway. And I didn't love all of the album, but I kept playing Wilderness, which I thought was fire. I was like, well, this is fire. I saw a knowledge destroyed. I traveled far and wide through many different times. So that's where it stopped and started for me. I didn't get into to Closer at all. Mm-hmm. But I thought that there were parts of Joy Division's work that reminded me a lot of early prints um, for, for various reasons. And so Closer missed, missed me um, altogether. I mean, for me, I, I think I had a similar experience insofar as the radio was, was really my introduction. But it wasn't so much the Joy Division with the exception of level tears apart, but growing up in Los Angeles, and I've talked about this on previous episodes, but I grew up in LA in, in the 80s, and KROQ, K-Rock out here was the alternative modern rock station, and they would play a lot, I mean, tons and tons of New Order, and myself and my cousin and a lot of my high school friends were all into that era of kind of synth pop, new wave, mm-hmm. modern rock stuff. And the only thing I knew about Joy Division was simply that they were the band that was before New Order, and that the, you know, the lead singer had killed himself, but I actually didn't hear anything off of this album because the only song, and, and, and it might have been I just simply wasn't paying close enough attention to the radio at the time, but the only song, the only Joy Division song they would play was Love Will Tear Us Apart. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I'd heard anything off of Closer until I was prepping for the show and I realized, wow, there's this whole other era of the group that had been um, unknown to me for those reasons. But the radio really was my intro to at least three of the four, and then plus Ian's voice on, on Level Terrace Apart. And we'll come back to that song, I'm sure, later. Um, Moby, back in 2002, you told an a, a interviewer at the New York Times that you thought that Ian Curtis was, quote, the greatest lyricist. And in particular, you highlighted how, quote, his lyrics create this cohesive emotional narrative without telling a story, unquote, which I thought would, was, a, was a really great insight. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what you mean by that? And in particular, if there's a song off the album that you think really helps to illuminate that idea. Hmm. I'm trying to think. Luckily, you gave me a list of the song title. <laughs> because the other thing with Joy Division, as, apart from Love Will Tear Us Apart, the song titles bear no relation to the songs themselves. <laughs> mm, mm. You know, like, and so... Um, I had an experience with Peter Hook, who was the bass player yeah. in Joy Division. Yeah. And he tours with his son playing New Order and Joy Division songs. And so when they're in L.A., I show up and I sing Joy Division songs with them. Wow. And, but he has to have the lyric book, and he also has to have the reminder of, like, what the titles are. He wrote these songs, and he doesn't even know <laughs> the titles. You know, like, I guess, okay, on this, there's the song Isolation, yes. which... He actually does say isolation. Okay. <laughs> but for the most part, like, you know, like atrocity exhibition, there's no atrocity exhibition in the song. But to your question, like, yeah. I mean, I'd say there's sort of like the last three songs on the record 24 Hours, The Eternal, and Decades. Mm. They're my f- three favorites. And they're so, they're like Sylvia Plath poems. Sure. You know, like very impressionistic, right. very image based, but without anything resembling you know it's not like a leonard cohen song where there's like a narrative start middle and end like it's just sort of like 
little snippets of beautiful imagery and and the sadness in them yeah and i i mean it's but it's the sad similar sylvia plath like if you look at her later work like ariel it's the same thing where like in hindsight you sort of look at it and you're like how did you not know she was going to kill herself <laughs> like you listen to these last three songs like how did you yeah. not know yeah. that this was a suicidal person because these are songs not of someone wrestling with sadness their song of their lyrics from someone who's already given in you know right. or given up like they've they're not fighting sadness they're succumbing to it right, right. not waving but drowning yeah. yeah we're inside now our hearts lost forever can't replace the fear nor the thrill of the chase Listening to this album, of course, and I, I'm sure this was the case for anyone who had known about the fact that Curtis has, had killed himself prior to when the album came out. So they recorded the album in, in the spring of 1980. Curtis dies in May, and then this album comes out in July. I think Curtis's presence is, it haunts this in both literal, I think, and figurative ways. And part of it is just the intense just flatness of, of the performance. Mm-hmm. And I think this partly speaks to your point, Moby, in terms of, especially on that, that B side is that, yeah, it's not, he's not raging against things. It's, the, it's kind of this, I don't know if acceptance is the right word, but yeah, he's not fighting against it. It's almost like a sort of calm resignation. Yes. You know, and, and there's the beauty that comes along with that. Cause like we all know there's a lot of music made by angry adolescents, yeah. you know, regardless of genre that's, screaming and angry and like how dare the world treat me this way and like you know like how dare i experience any sort of sadness and his was like oh there's no he's not railing against the universe he's not saying this is unfair he's not saying why me he's simply saying oh this is my lot in life to experience profound sadness and mental illness Mm -hmm. and he just sort of accepts it and dies and there's two things that i think are worth noting here biographically and i want to give uh, full credit here to my friend and neighbor uh, from South Pasadena, Simon Reynolds, who wrote a whole book about post-punk and Joy Division, obviously figuring very heavily in that, uh, called uh, Rip It Up and Start Again. And Simon noted two things. Number one is that because Ian Curtis had developed epilepsy mm-hmm. as an adult, he was heavily, heavily on barbiturates throughout this whole part of his life, which in conjunction with his existing depression and things going on in his personal life, you can hear, I think, what Simon describes um, his singing on this album as being through a barbiturate haze, which I think is not just, that's not a description. It is, or it's not a figurative description. It's literally what was happening with him. And you can hear that partly in the affect. The other thing too is that he mentioned that, uh, Simon mentioned that Tony Wilson, who was the head of Factory Records, which released um, most of Joy Division's uh, uh, early stuff, uh, reportedly had given Ian Curtis a bunch of Frank Sinatra albums to listen to prior to the recording of uh, the recording sessions that happened across 1980. And so part of what Curtis was working with was this kind of croony style that which which would not have gone with like kind of a rage against the sadness uh, description that we we're talking about earlier. And so trying to hold in my head both this person was heavily on Valium, but also listening to a lot of Frank. It's just a weird juxtaposition to think about, but I feel like you can kind of hear that knowing this within that affect um, within Curtis's voice. There is a bit of a monotone uh, monotone and, and a moroseness throughout right. that I think lends itself to the mood and the tone of it. Sometimes it's like during the album, it's like 
the drums are his heartbeat and the strings are his tears. But in between then, mm. there's sort of a flat line, not, not railing against, as you said, but sort of an acceptance or resignation that shows up in his tone. This is just what it is. I'm not going too high. I'm not going too low. This is where I am. This is an artist that's also not just dealing with mental illness, but physical illness. Right. And the challenges that come with both of those things and being in your 20s and being a father and being caught between two loves, it was a lot. And um, one of the things that I that I thought the most was, to your point earlier, that the song titles don't show up anywhere, mm-hmm. uh, anywhere else later, but they tell a lot. It's tough to start out an album with atrocity exhibition. <laughs> You're yeah. like, well, damn, this is going to be dark. But it was, one to me, one of the lighter-sounding songs on the album, which surprised me. You think with a title like that, it's going to be super heavy. Thematically, it was. But the feel of the song was one of the lighter songs. It certainly... I mean, that's one of the things I loved about this when I was growing up. It was a perfect soundtrack to drive riding around on my bike late at night <laughs> in Connecticut, mm. you know, which I did constantly because I didn't really have too many friends. So I would put my tape of Closer on my Walkman and get on my bike. And then when I was 17, I got a moped. I was Ooh. able to buy... I, Living reckless out there, Moby. Yeah, no, it was crazy. I d- didn't even have a helmet. And um, I would just, like, drive around, like, empty Connecticut at, like, 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning listening to this. Mm. And the album is like a... It's, I know a lot of great albums are soundtracks, but this is so atmospheric. Yes. And it mm-hmm. starts with Atrocity Exhibition, which is the loudest, fastest song on the record. Mm-hmm. And it just gets progressively quieter and slower and sadder and more cinematic as the record progresses. You know, so there's no like, you can sort of like hand your emotions over to it knowing that they're being well looked after. You know, there isn't that like that last song on the record that's going to wake you up. Like it just gets quieter and quieter and quieter, which I guess maybe not dissimilar from dying you know like sure. like it's this slow yeah. giving up you know and but you're right that first song is in some ways not indicative at all of what the rest of the record sounds like right. this is the way I'm wondering, too, in terms of whether you think that Curtis's voice, especially on this album in particular, is it working in concert with what's happening musically and mm. not just with the his other the musicians playing behind him, but also the work that Hammett is doing as a producer on here? Is it working in concert with that or in contrast to it? And not, not that it has to be an either or, but I'm wondering when you listen to this, what are you hearing? Well, this is relationship? one of the odd things about Joy Division and Ian Curtis. And there are a lot of odd things about Joy Division and Ian Curtis. But one is that they were really inspired by David Bowie and Iggy Pop and the Stooges. Right, mm. right. Absolutely. But you listen to Joy Division, I hear nothing about, you know, like, like, and his approach to singing, and this is one of the reasons I also related to him, he's technically not a great singer. Right. You know, like, he's not very melodic. He doesn't have a great range. And as someone who also grew up trying to sing, I recognized early on that like, I'm not a great singer and there's something Mm. liberating about other singers who like, like Lou Reed, Leonard Cohen, Johnny Cash, whomever, who like technically were not great singers, but somehow were able to communicate really powerful emotion in spite of, almost because they weren't technically great. So Mm. like 
there have been plenty of times where I've played Joy Division to people. I mean, especially back in high school, you know, I would like try to be dating someone and I would play her my Joy Division record and she'd be like, oh, who's that singer? Like, why does he sound so weird? And I was like, no, nope, this isn't going to work. We're like, not that you were interested anyway, but like this, we're doomed because I just played you my favorite piece of music ever and you think the singer sounds weird. But, but the truth is, he does sound weird. Yes. But it's sort of like working past those shortcomings. Right. You know, like that's what I think makes him a great singer is like, I don't know. It's almost like if he weren't such a remarkable lyricist, mm. if he was just like, if someone else was writing songs and they were just anodyne pop songs, yeah. no one ever would listen to him. Uh, this album feels like parting words. And if that's the case, what do you think Ian Curtis was trying to tell us? Mm about himself and where he was at the time of recording? Boy, that's a good question. Um, that, I think what he, I mean, because also where he's from, Macclesfield, which is outside of Manchester, like, it's depressing now in the 70s when England was, like, in the midst of a recession. Right. Like, gray, cold, post-industrial. Absolutely. 30% yeah. unemployment rate. Mm. Like, it was a really dark place. And I think what Ian Curtis was saying is like, the world is hard, the world is ugly, the world is dark, but you can still find remarkable beauty and connection in spite of that. Mm. You know, because that's mm. the other thing. Like we, there's, as we know, there's a lot of dark music out there that wallows in its darkness. Sure, this doesn't. This elevates beauty. You know, and again, I keep coming back to Sylvia Plath, where it's like she didn't write poetry saying like, like, my life is terrible and I hate it and I'm going to kill myself. She instead wrote beautiful poems about yew trees bathed in moonlight, mm. you know. And so there's there's a, a resigned, almost celebratory quality to it, saying like, almost like he's saying life didn't work out for me, but still look at the beauty. Sure. Yeah. I'm wondering if I can shift to something a little bit um, more biographical about you, Moby, in terms of how you were listening to this against the backdrop of what was also happening in terms of post-punk and mm -hmm. new wave and no-wave music coming out of Manhattan. And I don't know how far your Connecticut town was from, from the downtown scene in Manhattan, but were you also absorbing some of the stuff, you know, I'm thinking of what Liquid Liquid or Arthur Russell and Sonic Youth that was also percolating in that early 80s? Obsessively. Okay, so how did Joy Division fit in with, with this? And what were some, in, perhaps some of the similarities and differences between how artists on both, in both uh, sides of the Atlantic were working with the same set of ideas, but perhaps producing different sounds through it? I mean, it's a, it's a huge question. <laughs> I'm going to try and narrow it down a little yeah, bit because I could spend like the next month okay. just trying to answer that question. <laughs> yeah. But like... I can describe it in this way. Um, there was a nightclub in New York called Danceteria. Yes. Oh, yes. Legendary nightclub. And growing up in Connecticut, 40 minutes away from Manhattan, Got my it. friends and I were obsessed with anything pertaining to like art, music, literary, film, culture in New York, almost regardless of genre. Mm. And we would go to Danceteria and sneak in. And I'm, I'm putting out a memoir soon. Yes. And... There's one of my favorite chapters in the memoir is this trip to Danceteria where um, in the basement, the band Mission of Burma were playing. And then the floor above that, Bad Brains were playing, mm. you know, African-American hardcore punk band. The floor above that was a video lounge where they were playing like gothic videos from like Bauhaus and Joy Division. Mm, mm. The floor above that was a hip hop DJ. And the floor above that was a gay disco all in one club. So that's 
the milieu or the environment. Yeah. And it's almost like, like urban environments everywhere had been bombed out and anyone could live there because it cost nothing. Right. It sort of makes me wonder, like, if you're like a kid today, like, where do you go? Like, where do you move to? Where, like, what? Because cities are prohibitively expensive. Right. Like, sure. If, if you're a 19-year-old kid, where do you go? Like, because back then, everywhere was cheap, you know? And it was so liberating. Like, if you were willing to live in, like, a burned-out, abandoned building, I lived in an abandoned factory for years, like, hmm. you could live anywhere. And yeah. it was really exciting. And as a result, no one was making music to make money. No one was writing books. To, I'm sure some people were, but at right. least in, like, the counterculture, people weren't. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, these new genres, you know, all of a sudden hip hop existed and hip hop coexisted, you know, and then like electronic dance music and everything sure. coexisted. Like the DJs back then, you know, played everything. Yeah. Like you're really hard pressed to find a DJ who only played one genre of music, you know, so you'd hear dancehall reggae mixed into the clash, mixed into a hip hop record, mixed into Donna Summer, mixed in and... And everybody was influenced by that. And you can hear, even especially like as Joy Division became New Order, right. they were so influenced by dance music. Yeah, sure. clearly. Yeah. You know, and it was this, everybody was influencing everybody else, you know, like uptown influenced downtown and vice versa. To, to just piggyback on that last part about New Order being influenced by dance music, do you think that was because the change in, in the times and the change in genre, or would they not have been able to go there with Ian Curtis as a lead? I think Ian wanted them to go in that direction as well. Really? That was the, the, in my conversations with them, they were all so excited about dance music. Okay. You know, in the late 70s. And I mean, even there's one song they have called Interzone, which is a complete ripoff of, a, I forget the artist, he's an obscure soul artist. And he has a song called uh, Keep On Keeping On. Hmm. keep on. So in a weird way, they were very influenced by dance music, by electronic music, even though you can't necessarily hear it. But then New Order, I think, started spending more and more time in nightclubs because in the early 80s, they were like out of control alcoholics and drug addicts. <laughs> and they just started getting exposed to dance music. And to their credit, they heard, they were excited by it and had the courage to sort of start making electronic music, which was almost unheard of for a guitar-based, right. punk-influenced band to right. suddenly become what was functionally a disco band. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that Simon had mentioned to me is that uh, Morris, who was the drummer of the group, was the one who actually wanted to start tinkering with the drum machine. And normally you would think that a drummer would be threatened by it. But sure. in this case, this is part of what he was bringing to the table. And Hannon, obviously, in the studio, had been doing all kinds of electronic tinkering to play with their sound so that... I think it might seem dramatic, that shift, if you are just kind of plucking out, let's say, something off of Closer than comparing it with New Order four or five years later. Right. But the lineage was actually always there, even if it's not always, I think, hyper-apparent. And the other thing, I think maybe to your point, Moby, if I understood it too, is that after after Curtis's death, the, the members came over to the United States and specifically were spending a lot of quality time in New York City and maybe hanging out in the same of the same dance clubs that you're talking about. Yeah, and, 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 exposed and the club that. scene back then, I, I guess you guys weren't not new york of okay. the 80s not me no no, no. Uh, west coast okay. west coast yeah so 
my as I said, my friends and I just obsessively yeah. went out, you know, anywhere, whether it was CBs or A7 to see hardcore bands, mm-hmm. whether it was Danceteria or the Peppermint Lounge to, like, hear DJs and see other bands, um, going to, like, art galleries where, you know, Fab Five Freddy would be DJing. And it was just everything about it was exciting, mm-hmm. you know. And so I think if you were interested in the counterculture and you were able to be there, like everyone just sort of flocked to New York and you look at everything that came out of that, that little cauldron, yeah. you know, everything from Jean-Michel Basquiat to the Beastie sure. Boys to Madonna to right. Rick sure. Rubin to me, et cetera. Yeah. It's one of those things where every time I hear stories about New York of the early 80s, as someone who certainly did not grow up there and would not have been old enough to have gone to the clubs anyways, I was like eight, but it just seems so incredible. It's, it's easy to fall and be seduced by this kind of imagined nostalgia for a time that you never lived through. Uh, but every single person I've ever spoke to who did live through it, they're like, no, it really is as it was as exciting and interesting and enthralling as you've ever heard. Like none of this is made up. Like it was, it was real in that sure. sense. And so, it, yeah. I mean, I, I watched a documentary recently on the sunset strip. Yeah. And I have a feeling, like, for example, late 60s Sunset Strip right. was the same thing. Like, people who describe it where, like, you're walking down the street and, like, there's, you know, all the members of Love hanging out with Jim sure. Morrison. Sure. There's Joni Mitchell and Graham Nash writing songs with Neil Young. There's thousands of kids trying to get into clubs. Like, it's a similar thing. Like, I guess if you lived through it, it really was great. Yeah. What made New York so fascinating at that time, though, was as I said, like this polyglot culture in a blender, mm-hmm. you know, and everybody was, Jean-Michel Basquiat was like the poster child of that because he was a DJ, a break dancer, an artist, a musician, a videographer. Like he just, you would just try to do everything. The key point also that you made earlier, Moby, is simply that the cost of living, cost of housing in particular, was fundamental to making all of that possible. And obviously, if we look at modern day, Manhattan and modern day many cities around this, the, the, the U.S. and if not the world, that's something that cannot be replicated because of of you know increasing housing costs. But anyway, I just wanted to ask us a, a question. I don't want to beat beat this genre thing over the head too much, but I wanted to ask when I was in prep for this chat, there was a lot of a lot of talk about uh, punk versus the post punk versus new wave versus proto. Where do you see this album? In, in that group of genres? Where do they fit? This is, I'll, I'll defer to Simon Reynolds on this. This is the quintessential post-punk record. You know, like, they, Joy Division had sort of started as a punk band. Um, but punk, I mean, I mean, literally punk in the UK, I think it really only flourished for a couple of years. You know, like, 76, 77. And after 77, it was largely, I mean, I'm sure some people would scream at me for saying this, but in like in the UK, punk was kind of a spent force by 1978. And all the people who'd been excited by it had to go out and reinvent themselves. And that's sort of what Joy Division did. You know, I mean, I think in 1976, they probably wanted to sound like the Sex Pistols. Sure. By 1978, they wanted to sound like David Bowie. Mm-hmm. All right. And we'll be back with more of our conversation with Moby on Joy Division's Closer. After a brief word from a couple of great Max Fun podcasts, don't go anywhere. Judge John Hodgman ruled in my favor. Judge John Hodgman ruled in my friend's favor. Judge John Hodgman ruled in my favor. I'm Judge John Hodgman. 
You're hearing the voices of real litigants, real people who have submitted disputes to my internet court at the Judge John Hodgman podcast. I hear their cases, I ask them questions, they're good ones, and then I tell them who's right and who's wrong. Thanks to Judge John Hodgman's ruling, my dad has been forced to retire one of the worst dad jokes of all time. Instead of cutting his own hair with a flobie, my husband has his hair cut professionally. I have to join a community theater group. And my wife has stopped bringing home wild animals. It's the Judge John Hodgman podcast. Find it every Wednesday at MaximumFun.org or wherever you download podcasts. Thanks, Judge John Hodgman. Friendship is tough, especially when you're constantly slaying carnivorous hell beasts bent on your destruction. Hey, make sure to clean the tub. I might actually need to shower today. Oh, don't give me that. You've been wearing the same pair of track pants since Tuesday. I mean, they still have the size sticker on the leg. Yeah, they do. Well, still, I was thinking today might be the day. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's still alive! Kill it! I don't have any weapons! Get it with the shower head! <laughs> oh. Shit. My burrito got some gunk on it. But that's just Fairhaven. We make it work. Bubble, the sci-fi comedy from MaximumFun.org. Just open your podcast app and search for Bubble. We are back on Heat Rocks, talking about Joy Division's 1980 album Closer with our guest, Moby. I want to ask about your fire track or what you think is uh, your favorite or the standout track from this album. I guess what we need to do is sort of like try and like determine by what criteria am I choosing this song? <laughs> sure. Like, like, is it my favorite or is it like if I was to like sit someone down who'd never heard Joy Division and play them a song? Because mm. oftentimes those are two very different yes. things. And we, well, actually, we, yeah. we, we actually asked that question later. Like if you had to introduce someone to Joy so Division. So this one is just simply subjective. My your favorite. favorite song. Yeah. Um, oh, it's so hard because I like, I mean, <laughs> not, my bad, Moby. <laughs> no, no. Um, okay. I'll go with uh, The Eternal, mm. which is track, I mean, it was track three on side B because I'm old and I had vinyl but like I guess track eight on the Spotify playlist (laughs) the penultimate track how about that yeah thanks for using penultimate right a lot of people (laughs) use penultimate mean like it's the best it's the penultimate I was like no penultimate is just next to last (laughs) try to cry out in the heat of the moment possessed by a fury that burns from inside First of all, there, there's so many ways I can sort of, like, subjectively, I love the vulnerability of it mm. and the beauty of it. But also, as we all know, it's hard for male musicians to be vulnerable. Mm. You know, much easier for male musicians to put on this sort of facade of cool or tough or whatever. Like, sure. But to be genuinely, like, for male especially like white male musicians to make something that's beautiful and delicate and vulnerable, especially coming from Macclesfield, England. Like there's no beauty or delicacy or vulnerability there. So like Mm. how they knew to do that. I'm so impressed. Like in all the, and the restraint, you know, like they're a rock band and they're not showing off. Yeah. There are no guitar solos. 
you know, there's no drum solos, nothing's loud. And that restraint from a sort of sonic compositional perspective, I think is really commendable. Like I'm always impressed by like, especially white musicians who don't have to sort of like prove themselves mm -hmm. and like be overly cool or overly tough. You know, it's the same thing with hip hop. Like the hip hop that's always resonated with me with the most is the hip hop that has a beauty and a vulnerability to it. Like I don't need another song about people being in a club or making money or <laughs> bottle service. But then you go back and listen to like The Message or New York, New York, like, or even some like BDP tracks mm. where there's like, there's a vulnerability to it. Love's and gonna I think, get you, yeah. And yeah. I think that's so, that that's what's always resonated with me. And so this song, and also just lyrically, like as we've said about a lot of these songs, but this in particular, it's just so delicate. Mm -hmm. And so, just that sadness and the vulnerability. And the tempo of it to me is so slow. It's like he's running out of, he's running out of his will. He's yeah. running out of time. He's running out of, of, of air. And so it moves so slowly that it's not surprising to me that it's at, that it comes at the end. Because mm -hmm. it, it's sort of, to me, the end of the end. He's just running out of time. Yep. Um, that's a hard listen for me. Mm -hmm. uh, of the darkness of this album, the Eternals uh, pretty pretty dark. Well, this is why I don't think any of the people I tried to date in high school necessarily <laughs> resonated. Like I was like, they're like, do you have a Huey Lewis song? Do you like? Could you like? And I'm like, no. Listen to this. It's beautiful and sad. They're like, what about Rod Stewart? And I'm like, kudos to Rod Stewart. Shout out to Rod. But this is so much. I don't know everything about it. I just I remember just the. The symphonic quality, the atmospherics. That rattle. I mean, with the first time I heard this, that was the first thing that jumped out to me. It's just that, that little bit of a rattle that comes in throughout the song and just thinking, whose idea was it? Probably Martin Hannett, right. the producer. I mean, right. Martin Hannett, there's, there's a wonderful movie called 24-Hour Party People. Yes. Actually, there's two movies I'll recommend. 24-Hour Party People, which right. is about factory records. Right. And Martin Hannett plays a big part in that. And then, um, what's it called? Control. Control, the Anton Corbin movie about Joy Division. Mm -hmm. Yes. Both of those, they're very, very different. Um, control is interesting. When I saw it, I'm, I'm sober now. That's the last night I ever did a ton of drugs because mm. I went to the theater to see it and it messed me up so hard that I had to, I stayed up for like the next 24 hours just doing as many drugs as I could shovel into my system. Largely based because the, the movie's really intense. Mm. Whereas 24 Party People, 24 Hour Party People, I don't know if you would call it a straight up comedy, but it certainly has very comedic elements. Tony Wilson's played by Steve Coogan. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Who's you know, it's, gifted British comic uh, actor. It's got some very dark moments, but like it's a super, even like they, they managed to find like lightness and comedy yes. in Ian Curtis killing himself. Yes. Like that's not a dark <laughs> moment in the movie necessarily. Right. So like, yeah, 24 Hour Party People. And a, What's also funny is as time has passed, I've become very good friends with all the former members of Joy Division. We actually went on tour together mm. one of the greatest summers of my life. It was 2001, and I was on tour with New Order and Outkast and The Roots. Oh, my God. Wow. And, oh and my who, was God. A, who was the programmer for that tour? Me. That's dope. I was, it was. It was my tour. Wow. Nice. It was a, called Area One. Nice. Area Two was even better. It was me, Buster Rhymes, David Bowie, and the Blue Man Group. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah, how I was allowed to do these tours, I don't know. But like, <laughs> Shout out to you, Mo. So yeah. the last night of the tour, I had gotten to know New Order, and I went to them, and I... Like I worked up all my courage and I said, do you think we could play a Joy Division song for this last night of the tour? And I thought they were going to say like, how dare you? 
Mm. How dare you ask this? Joy Division is sacrosanct and the past shall remain untouched. And instead they opened like a Coors Light and said, yeah, sure, why not? (laughs) And so I found myself playing Joy Division with Joy Division. Yeah. And what a moment. At the end of it, Peter Hook, the bass player, looked at me and he said, he said, you know, Ian would be proud. And it was one of those moments where I was like, okay, I have to pretend this is normal. Yeah. You know, my heroes have just told me that like my favorite lyricist and singer of all time would be proud at the job I've done. I mean, a lot of public figure musician stuff is like that. Like you meet your heroes and you try and pretend it's normal. Right, right. When all you want to do is like be like, Fan out. Like yeah. Wayne in Wayne's World yeah. when he meets Alice Cooper. You just want to like fall down and say like, we're not worthy. So, but yeah, singing a Joy Division song with Joy Division on tour was a really remarkable moment. Okay. I have so many questions right now. I mean, start with one. What song did you pick to sing? Uh, New Dawn Fades. So okay. actually, it's it's from Unknown Pleasures, sure. the first album. Different colors, different shades over each mistakes were made. I took the blame. Largely, we picked it because it only has four chords. Yeah. And when we did it, we've many of us have since gotten sober. We were very drunk. And some of us were very high. So it was like, and Billy Corgan and John Frusciante came out and played guitar. Mm. So it was this sort of like all-star Joy Division jam. Mm. It was the last song of the tour. So there was vodka and cocaine everywhere, <laughs> internally, externally. So like, the four chords seemed like that was achievable yeah. for people this <laughs> drunk and high. Yeah. I also just want to know in terms of the audience coming to to this tour. I mean, that is such... I, it's not that the, the groups don't make sense together, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, but I imagine if you're like a hardcore outcast fan, like what would you think about like the other folks on the bill given, the, the you know, who you drew together for that? And, and what year was this? That was 2001 with um, with The Roots and Outkast and Incubus were also on the bill and a bunch of DJs um, and New Order um, and me. And then the, the second year was even more confusing because you had David Bowie, Buster Rhymes, myself and Blue Man Group. Yeah. There was not a lot of overlap there. And so as a result, the second tour didn't do nearly as well as the first one because the first one, you're right, it was like almost unprecedented eclecticism. Yeah. But somehow... I don't know how or why it worked. Like, and the shows all did really well. Yeah. So, I, I'm just trying to imagine, and I could, and I, the thing is, I could imagine this quest love, you know, loving all of this. Oh, sure. Just knowing the expansiveness of his musical, sure. you know, embrace and whatnot. And, and, and yeah. Dre is well, I mean, like, Outcasts are like, their approach oh, sure. to music is very, oh, very eclectic. Yeah, yeah, you know, sure. like, yeah. they're like a third hip hop, two thirds space alien music. Yeah. Sure, know? sure. <laughs> Morgan, yep. do you have a fire track off this album? And I got to say, with this album in particular, because of how chilly it sounds, fire doesn't seem like the right yeah. word to use, but you know what we mean. I, I yeah. do, I do. To be honest, uh, my two favorites are the first two. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it feels weird to say that I, I like a song called Atrocity Exhibition, but I like that song. Mm-hmm. This is the way. This is the way to step inside. My second favorite is Isolation. And I think if I'm honest about it, it's because of the songs that come after it, they're the lightest. And I'm using light, you know, 
mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't really, I mean, this is a heavy album. So to say that something's light on here is tough, but they are the lightest. I mean, I can't believe that um, the song that I fell for the hardest is a song that talks about isolation and that I see a song called Isolation mm-hmm. as being light. And he's saying, I'm ashamed of, of what I've been through, what I put, put yeah. you know what I'm saying? I like that song, though. I like the arrangement. I like the feel of it. And, and maybe I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but I guess one of your other questions is going to be if I had to play a song off the record to sort of like lure someone in. Yeah. It would be Isolation. Isolation. Because mm-hmm. it is, it's a dan- it's an electronic dance track. Right. That's it. Like it's just like a drum machine and some bass That's and some synth. synths and like it is the closest thing on the record to a pop song. And I mean that in a really good way. Right. What does so, that say about me? That, that I like that song. Because now it, I feel... Well, no, no. It possibly says that you did not grow up as a terrified, ashamed 15-year-old kid in Connecticut sure. in 1980 who re- needed the sort of like the comfort of, you know, the really dark, sad songs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would also say, too, and speaking as someone who did grow up listening to a lot of New Order, Isolation is the most proto-New Order song on sure. here. I mean, you can definitely see... Yeah. That jump through it, and so it's it's the one. It's not necessarily my favorite, but it's the one where I could I could hear the beginnings of what would you know get fleshed out you know a, a few years down the road. I would also say yeah. because you work professionally in the music business, if I owned a record company and they submitted this record to me, I'd be like, "Oh boy, <laughs> what's the single?" And I'd be like, "The only thing even a pro that's close to a single is isolation." So sure. like, it definitely seems like if you work in the music business for a long time, you do develop that sort of like, I don't know, like auditory skills to figure out like what is the most engaging song on a record. Right. And it certainly is. Well, speaking of singles, if I can just throw this in the conversation. Sure. As we mentioned earlier, Love Will Tear Us Apart is the number one Joy Division hit in terms of this one song. If anyone knows anything about the group, they know that one. And it was a song that was recorded, I think, what, two months before this album was recorded. And for reasons that I think were consistent with how the music industry dealt with singles versus albums back in this era. They decided to just release it as a non-album single. I feel like these days they would have put that shit on closer. Like they would just put it Absolutely. on. Absolutely. Should they have? If, uh, if we could go back in hindsight, does it does depend, it work as a as a fan? Yeah, I sort of and also the history of Factory Records is just like constant mistakes. <laughs> right. You know, for example, New Order. One of their biggest singles is Blue Monday. Blue Monday yeah. never yeah. appeared on an album. Right. And and the way that they pressed the original sleeve, there's a there's a great scene of this in um, twenty four hour, hour party, party people, people, yeah, where they made this f- custom die cut sleeve. So every copy they sold, they lost a dollar on because it was so expensive to produce the single. It became the biggest selling twelve inch single in history, <laughs> yes. and it almost wow. the success of Blue Monday almost bankrupted Factory Records. The same thing with this. I'm sure Tony Wilson, who was, we were friends before he died, I'm sure this drove him insane. He was like, oh, my band has a hit single. Guess what? It's not on the album. <laughs> you know, like I'm sure he was like, oh, come on. Like, really, guys? You make a dark, in a, almost for a lot of people, like a very a record that's hard to listen to. And you have the only thing in your career that's close to a hit single. Yeah. And it's not on the album. Yeah. Like, it's kind of like. Imagine Nirvana releases Nevermind. Right. But they say, no, we're not going to put Smells Like Teen Spirit on. <laughs> right. Somebody's fired. Should, would it have worked on this album, though? I'm That's glad that they didn't because I think the album is so cohesive. Yeah. I'm glad it doesn't have that the single on it, but I fully understand Tony Wilson's frustration sure. at not being able to include his band's one-hit single 
on their last album. I feel like on, in terms of the sonic texture of it, I think the content of the song, just given everything that we know that Curtis was going through, it might have worked in terms of lyrically. But sonically, to me, it's so different than most of this album. I just think it would have been that jarring like, you know that they just kind of sandwiched in there because they wanted to capitalize, but not because it made sense to Moby's point in terms of within the cohesiveness of the album. And to, to the question that you bring up a lot about sequencing, where do you put that song in this album? Yeah. It what? could be the last one, but then that just completely it's undoes weird. the affect of the of the album that yeah. we, as we know it. Or, and then sad adolescents like me listening to it in my bedroom, you know, in 1981 would have hated Lovell Terrace Apart because it would have been the interruption to the sort of like yes. descending beauty right. of the record. Right, right. I wanted to ask if I could... In your conversations with the band or the band members, have they talked about the recording of this album? No. Um, it's weird, and I'm sure that you guys have had this experience. Like, you meet your heroes, you become friends with your heroes, and you never quite know the extent to which you're allowed to be a fan and ask fan questions. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. You know, so hanging out with them, like, we never really talk about work or music. It tends to just be, like, lighthearted banter. Same thing, like, I became very good friends with David Bowie. Mm-hmm. And all the time we hung out, I never once talked about his music. You know, never once talked about recording any of his records, which is what all I wanted to ask. (laughs) But instead I just pretended like, oh, we're friends, we're neighbors. You know, let's hang out, let's have dinner. Right. Lighthearted banter when all I wanted to do was like sit down and say, okay, on track three of Heroes, (laughs) when you were working with Brian Eno, what did you do? Like, so the same thing with Joy Division. Like, never actually asked a single all that i know about it is just being a nerd and going on wikipedia right was there something that you would have asked if, if given the opportunity about the recording of the album what was the mood like what was mm. it like this is dark material mm. so what was the mood like recording right. some of this stuff what was it like in studio if he was suffering uh with with his seizures at the time what was that what was that like working with someone that was that was ill well, seriously ill one thing i've sort of have gleaned is like the guys in the band as I mentioned, they're just like happy-go-lucky, lighthearted guys, you know, um, Stephen and Hooky and Barney. Like, you expect them to be dour and dark. Sure. They're just pretty happy guys. Mm-hmm. And apparently, Ian was also like kind of like happy, like he was their friend. And they were drinking, they were going out to the pub, they're playing darts, they're just like, but it's interesting, like, I, I think that they might have almost based their perspective on their interaction with him in the pub as opposed to the lyrics that he was writing. Sure. Mm-hmm. We didn't really prep you for this ahead of time, so this may be hard to to think about, but we, we've been uh, asking our guests if there's a favorite moment on the album. So not in the song, but just a point at which, whether it was the first time or the hundredth time you've heard it, it still gives you that that kind of chill moment that, or chills you know, running up the spine. Um, for me, for example, it's, it's the opening to 24 uh, Hours, and I think it was, I was trying to figure out why, what was so striking about it. And it's, to me, it comes back to Sumner's guitar, which is, as again, someone who grew up mm-hmm. listening to New Order, it's Pavlovian, that sound that he manages to achieve on that. And maybe part of that is Hannah doing some studio stuff to it. But nonetheless, it makes me think of Confusion instantly, which was, of course, kind of like a Joy Division and New Order bridge song. But mm-hmm. just the way in which Sumner plays it just hits me in, in every time I've, I've been listening to this album prep it coming back to that moment. It's still there. Mm-hmm. 
So, Moby, asking you on the spot, is there a favorite moment you have on this album? Yes. And it's contrary to almost everything I've said. Okay. It's actually the beginning of isolation. Just like the kick drum and the snare that Mm -hmm. starts it out. feel like a little bit of a sellout saying that because what I love about the record is it's sort of like understated grandeur and beauty but every time I hear that like the kick snare combination from the drum machine that they were using it just wakes me up like there's just like and I also am fascinated by like and it would be an interesting almost like instead of name that tune like name that electronic drum sound Mm -hmm. you know like because that song starts like there's no music. It's just right. a kick drum and an electronic snare drum, but it's instantly recognizable. And there's something like, even all these years later, when I hear that, I immediately know, yeah, what's going, you know, right. what what happens. Like there's such a, such a bright moment. And again, I do feel like I'm contradicting myself because what I love is the sort of like the darkness and the beauty of the record. Right. But nonetheless, there's that that beginning is really iconic to me. I think the favorite moment question really is about what is it that we're responding to on a visceral level, not necessarily intellectual. And I think that to that point, it, it makes sense that whether it's that moment of recognition that you have with it or just the particular timbre of, you know, that drum and kick, uh, kick and a snare. I mean, that's what it is that when we, when we find those things on, on records that we love, it doesn't, it's not something because we're processing what this means to us emotionally, what this means to us intellectually. It's just for whatever reason, the mystery of it just hammers for us. Do you have a favorite moment, Morgan? I have to say the beginning. I have to say the beginning of Atrocity Exhibition and the lyrics. And that not knowing the background of this man, that it drew me into instant empathy. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure if he was talking about his self necessar- himself or his state of mind. But people paying money to see someone's body twitch and yeah. saying that, knowing now that I know that he suffered with, with epilepsy and with seizures... Mm-hmm. It just drew me into whatever was going um, on with him in a way that I didn't expect to be. And once I knew a little bit of the backstory, it was for me a moment where I'm going to start with telling you the the state of my union right now. This is where I am Mm -hmm. without being angry. And I think sometimes in music, it's easier to be angry than it is to be sad. Yeah. And this was him being sad, but also being... Um, descriptive descriptive and, and and almost tragically self-aware but a way that that drew me in from the beginning yeah, even right. even though I, as i said to you before moby this song was light lighter to me it drew me in immediately and mm. it gave me instant empathy mm-hmm. for 23 year old man um contemplating his life and his challenges and, and being ill in the recording of this I mean, it just drew me in so that that that's my favorite moment I love the percussion. Yep. I love that yep. what sounds like someone jackhammering. Just so many of the sounds on this album I just find completely fascinating. And it's funny because, and I, I wonder, I'd almost like to have a compendium of this, of songs that started from a practice riff. Because that drum pattern, apparently Stephen Morris was just warming up. Mm-hmm. Like, so he's like, his drum teacher had taught him that like, <laughs> kick hi-hat, kick hi-hat, like snare tom, snare tom. So he's like getting warmed up. Yeah. And they're like, oh. That sounds good. Apparently, um, Sweet Child of Mine 
you know, that there, 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 there. It's the same thing. Slash was playing a warm-up exercise that his guitar teacher had given him. So I wonder how many songs have started just from, like, someone warming up. Right. That's an episode of Heat Rocks. (laughs) Yeah. need to get into the miscues that made beauty. And it's the wisdom of just roll tape. Yep. It's expensive, but just roll it because you never know what's going to happen, right? We don't always ask this because it depends on the relationship between the guests and the album and how much time's gone by. But since this is an album that is, you know, soon to turn, what, 40 years old in in a couple of years, when you come back to this album, I don't know how often you, you go back to Closer to listen to it again, have you ever heard new things from it over time that you didn't hear when you were, you know, 15 years old in Connecticut? Yeah, I mean, when I was 15, and I assume you guys had similar experiences, like, you just accepted everything. You know, if someone made a record and you were able to listen to it, you didn't question any of their choices. And mm. when I go back now and I hear sort of like the orchestral elements, I really wonder how they knew to do that, mm. but also the electronic elements. Um, and it definitely does presage what they did in New Order. And But to put it in context, like the late 70s, like white guys in Northern England were not, I don't know, inspired by dance music in the late 70s. Sure. You know, they were like getting guitars and playing like really loud punk rock. And so I go back and I sort of like can put it in a context and to see what what they were auguring in a way, like Mm. what they were presaging. And in a way, like being allowed like to be in, like they're, they're very much, and this is true for a lot of musicians, it's like you're the product of your enthusiasms. Yeah. You know, like you become a fan of something and you're like, oh, guess what? I'm a musician and I love Donna Summer, so I'm now going to try and like make music that sounds like Donna Summer, even if you're white guys from Northern England in sure. 1978. And, and I'm sort of glad that 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 the change that happened or the, the, the band becoming New Order, that it's it's not good news, but I can just imagine how difficult it would would have been to make that transition. And then Ian have to talk about why did he go from this darkness to that yeah. in the way that reporters can be probing and having to talk about his state of mind. He talked about his state of mind. He gave us closer. And I'm so glad that he didn't have to promote this album and have to talk about how he felt on, 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 on every track in a way that would have been interesting. Yeah, I never thought of it from that perspective, but you're absolutely right. I mean, that is one of the liabilities or downsides of making personal vulnerable music, yeah. um, you have to go out and talk about it. Talk about or like, it. for example, so I put out a memoir a few years ago called Porcelain and it was really interesting going, because there's a lot of darkness in there and this new memoir is even darker. And I almost have to steal myself, like prepare myself, like, okay, I'm going to go out and talk to people about very dark, yeah. really intimate, vulnerable things. And you kind of almost have to dissociate a little bit where you're like, you're like, okay, I wrote a memoir, I wrote an autobiography, or in the case of song lyrics, like I've written vulnerable song lyrics. How can I detach from that? Right. Mm. You know, how can I describe that? Even though I'm talking about myself, I'm sort of detached and describing it ostensibly in the third person. Mm. I hadn't thought about that. That is, that is, that's deep. Yeah. Yeah. Much easier if you're like in Motley Crue going out and talking about like, where was the inspiration for Shout at the Devil? Where they're like, well, like there's a devil and you shout at him. Do you consider Closer to be right on time ahead of its time or timeless? I'm going to go with timeless, which, well, I mean, in a human context, you know, like, I don't know about 
13.5 billion year age of the universe okay. timeless, but like timeless <laughs> in that like <laughs> poetic, you know, like I feel like confused adolescents and confused human beings will always resonate with a poetic, beautiful expression of confusion. Mm. If you had to describe the album in three words, how would you describe it? Um, hmm, three words. How about, I'm trying, I don't want it like, because there's the obvious words that jump to my head feel cliched and vague. So I'd say like um, symphonic, mm. even though there are no symphonic conventional symphonic elements it just has a, a sense of space and melody to it that to me feels like it it seems symphonic to me and i'm just going to go with beautiful as vague and general a word mm-hmm. as that it's symphonic beautiful and heartbreaking mm-hmm. i'm just curious what would the cliche choices have been poetic mm. So I'm like, come on, really? <laughs> You're like, I can do better than poetic. Yeah. Even though I think it is poetic, I'm just sure. I'm disappointed at myself for thinking of that. That's okay. Yeah. That'll do it for this episode of Heat Rocks with our special guest, Moby. His new memoir, Then It Fell Apart, is out now. Uh, thanks for coming to sit with us. Where can people find you? Um, I mean, I own a restaurant in Silver Lake called Little Pine. So I'm there pretty often. Um, it's a vegan restaurant. We give all our money to animal rights organizations, mm-hmm. um, but in a virtual, non-physical sense. <laughs> also, I go hiking a lot. Like if if you wander around if Griffith you Park, Moby, here's where you can do it. Just either Little Pine or just wander around Griffith Park and spot the middle-aged bald guy. Um, uh, on I guess I'm Instagram Moby. I think Facebook, Moby, as well. Twitter, I never... I, I look at Twitter, but, like, right. I never post anything. I'm a, I guess I'm a troll on Twitter. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think Instagram is Moby. Okay. I assume so. Clearly, you spend a That's lot of time on, yeah. like, on the socials, at least. Maybe not, so... <laughs> well, I, I guess I, I don't ever search myself on there, it. There so, like, you know, if you open up Instagram, it just naturally right. opens, and I, Good point. I haven't looked at my name in a long time, so... Thank you so much for coming through. This was fantastic. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. If you like this week's album, Joy Division's Closer, me and Morgan have our own recommendations for other things you should check out. I would suggest, and this might not seem intuitive, but take a listen to World Ultimate by the L.A. hip-hop duo The Nonce. The album's from 1995, and though genre-wise, it may not seem obvious that the two have much in common, I've always found that there was an underlying melancholy to World Ultimate and the Nantes in general and their sound. And of course, uh, Nantes member Yusuf Afloat did eventually take his own life in 2000. But to me, the reason I chose this was not about that backstory, but really about the sound of Closer reminds me in a broad way about what it's like to listen to World Ultimate and the Nantes. On the bus, rolling to the crib. I would get dibs on the seat with my man OJ at Rock Beach from Lamert Park the 81st when I got home. This was first. I plugged the headphones in, then catch the break. I think if you like uh, this uh, episode and this this album, then you might do yourself a favor and get into the work of Elliot Smith. Uh, either either or or songs from a basement on a hill. Um, I think you have a similar level of melancholy, although the voice uh, isn't the same, and there's not, to me, as much uh, maudlin. But it's a very vulnerable, both albums are very vulnerable. Uh, Songs from Basement on the Hill was released posthumously, as Elliot Smith died in 2003. 
Um, but I think if you if you like vulnerability, or as Moby mentioned, uh, white male vulnerability um, and sadness, either one of those Elliott Smith albums uh, would be a good look. I hope you're not waiting Waiting around for me You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wang, and Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Heat Rocks is produced by myself and Morgan, alongside Christian Duenas, who also edits engineers and does the booking for our shows. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and our executive producer is Jesse Thorne. We are part of the Max Fun family, keeping every week live in their studios in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles. One last thing, here's a teaser for next week's episode featuring DJ Rashida talking to us about Outkast's Southern Playalistic Cadillac music. I mean, they gave me Souls of Mischief vibes too. That's when when I when I talk about like the album being a mishmash of all this shit that I was already into and it, there was the West Coast vibes but not just like LA vibes to me. They definitely had a that Oakland kind of like I mean maybe not specifically Oakland but their rapping style reminded me of that but then again there was the live instrumentation but it was funk but it was gangster but then it was southern so it was definitely like you know it was a combination of things but I definitely I mean I even got the Bay <laughs> vibes from them from their style you know the rapping style maximumfun.org comedy and culture artist owned audience supported